I know the one in whom I have put my trust. These words mean a great deal to me. They're from the second letter to Timothy, first chapter, 12th verse. That phrase is actually in the middle of a longer verse with lots more words, all of which are great, but that that phrase captures an essential core of my own theology. I know the one in whom I have put my trust. And because I know the one in whom I have put my trust, I'm called to live differently than I otherwise would. I'm called to hold myself to a different standard than I otherwise would. I'm expected to care about the plight of others in different ways than I otherwise would. In other words, uh, these brief words of scripture help me remember truly a core part of my identity. Early in my year-long seminary class called Interpretation of the New Testament, our professor gave us what seemed like an elementary task. Now for context, uh, New Testament and seminary is a very intense course, as you might imagine. And just to remind myself how intense it was, I went back and looked at the, the first semester syllabus this week. I still hold on to those because I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. And I looked it up. And as far as reading goes, there were eight required textbooks. The first listed and most important, of course, was the Bible, but there were lots of others as well. There were nine recommended textbooks, five of which were strongly recommended, which meant you kind of had to read them. And then there were 14 required articles and short stories. As far as assignments go, uh, there were two required major papers, and these take hours and hours to do. There were several brief writing assignments. There was a map quiz, which was not really easy. There was an in-class midterm exam, of course, and then there was an in-class final exam of course, and as the professor uh, was reviewing the syllabus on the first day of class, in true people of God fashion, there began to be some murmuring. <laughs> if you've ever read Exodus, you know, you know the reference. Uh, most of us in that class had had Old Testament the year before, and it was kind of like the people of God complaining to Moses after the Exodus, in this case, grumbling about the workload for this course. As I said, it was going to be intense. And the professor said something that I, I loved. I actually wrote it down at the top of the syllabus. Uh, she said, listen, if you want something easy, go to medical school or law school. <laughs> she said, people will be entrusting you with the care of their souls. <clears throat> if there's anything you have to know, you have to know, it's the story of Jesus. And I think those are words to live by for all of us pastor or not. And so it's in, it's in this context, in this very intense year of Bible study, that she gave us what seemed to be an elementary task. She gave us a, a list of 20 or so scriptures that we had to commit to, to memory. And when I asked her, just out of curiosity, um, why this seemingly, seemingly elementary task in the midst of all the other things we were doing, she said, it's because there are uh, some biblical truths that really just need to be a part of who you are. Um, biblical truths that come to mind when we need them, whether or not we have our Bibles with us all the time. And just to date myself, this was before iPhones, so it was before you could carry around the Bible electronically with you, but the, the same principle applies. She said uh, that eventually each of us would have our own list, of course. Again, that's true for all of us, pastor or not. And that uh, if we got into the habit now by memorizing the list that she had given us, we would be well on our way to this important spiritual discipline. I'm guessing that there are surely verses of scripture like that 
for everybody here. I know the one in whom I have put my trust is one of those scriptures for me. And another is from our reading for today, which we'll, we'll get to shortly. Uh, this is the third and final week of our sermon series called Awakening, inspired by a terrific book by Lisa Miller called The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. Dr. Miller has been with us this weekend. Uh, if you are uh, planning to attend her keynote address at 12.45 p.m. today, as I mentioned earlier, walk-ups are welcome. Your $20 registration fee includes a copy of that book as long as, we, uh, as, long as supplies last, I guess is what we're supposed to say. And the book is a, uh, a culmination of a quarter century of research and practice uh, that has proven something that people of faith have always intuitively known, that the human brain has a capacity for spirituality, that each of us has this innate desire to connect with God even if we don't realize it. Now, in Methodist theology, we talk about this in terms of something called prevenient grace, which means that God um, is constantly reaching out to us from our earliest days, always inviting us into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Dr. Miller's research has proven something exciting and crucially important, that when that spiritual part of our brain is engaged, uh, spirituality correlates to better mental health and lower levels of depression and addiction and a greater resilience in the face of the stresses of life. Now when she says spirituality, what she's talking about is personal devotion to God, which we all need, as opposed to a specific religious tradition, which we also need, by the way, uh, but we're focusing on spirituality in this series. Now, you'll have to read the book to uh, get all the details and all the research. There's a fair amount of detail in the book, but the findings of her work are multifaceted. They include the, the fact that we are spiritual beings, that uh, spirituality is not just a belief, but something that each of us is born with a capacity to experience. And there are protective benefits of uh, intergenerational transmission of spirituality, which is to say, we raise our kids in church <laughs> and we raise our youth in church and we watch them grow in their faith as they watch us practice our faith. In other words, God is revealing something to us through modern science that God revealed in our Judeo-Christian tradition long ago. In week one of this series, we talked about the importance of awakening our attention to God through mindfulness practices like prayer and meditation and time in nature. In week two, we talked about awakening our uh, connection to God through our connection to each other, specifically in the context of our community of faith. And today, we're talking about awakening our hearts, which is to say our very selves, to God. And once, once again, we're going to be reading the, the recommended Old Testament lectionary text for today. This is Micah chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 uh, eventually, but I'm going to read the first five verses now. We'll come back to the rest later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the prophet Micah. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people and he will contend with Israel. 
Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So for me, this is, um, it's one of the most important passages in the Bible. We're gonna get to one of the, the most important verses in scripture shortly, but for now, that, that text needs a little bit of um, unpacking. We need some background because it's important to know that what Micah is describing here is a, a courtroom scene. The people of God are on trial in this passage, and here's why. Micah lived during a time when the kingdom of Judah was enjoying a a rare period of peace and prosperity. Economically speaking, things were pretty good, at least for those who had power. Judah was led by effective kings who built cities and developed trade and commerce with neighboring kingdoms, which led to this dramatic increase in prosperity for some. What we know from Micah is that this uh, prosperity was not shared among most of the population. In fact, the wealth seems to have been concentrated in the hands of a few. And those few, by and large, did not live up to their covenant responsibilities to be good stewards of what God had entrusted to them. There was this growing disparity during this period uh, between the wealthy and the poor and growing exploitation of the poor by at least some of the wealthy. What Micah saw was corruption and injustice in the, in the behavior of the people of God. He tells us that, that landlords uh, exploited and stole from their, their poor tenants. He tells us uh, how people were forced from their homes and farms because of the greed of, of government officials and even greed of the priests and the prophets of God. As far as Micah was concerned, some of the people of God, certainly the most influential and powerful among the people of God, had forgotten who they were. God's people had had been delivered from captivity in Egypt. They had been established by God in the promised land. They had agreed to behave in certain ways in response to all that God had done for them. But some of God's people had not lived up to their end of the deal loving money and power more than God, exploiting and oppressing rather than caring for the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the stranger. Some of God's people uh, seem to have forgotten Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, a law that Jesus would later lift up as one of the two great commandments, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Micah tells us all this in in the first five chapters of his book, that's this long Uh, description of the way things are, which is not the way things should be. And then at the beginning of the sixth chapter, Micah describes this courtroom scene. That's what we just read with God as the plaintiff, Micah himself as the prosecutor, all creation as the witnesses, God's people as the defendant. And Micah's point is that God's people must repent, which means to turn, to get back on the path that God intends for them because because of their relationship with God, they have, to, they have to live differently than they otherwise would. They have to hold themselves to a different standard than they otherwise would. They have to care about the plight of others in different ways 
than they otherwise would. Part of Lisa Miller's research has been to identify uh, the spiritual commonalities among different traditions. Uh, In this research, she included the world's most populous religious traditions, which are Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, as well as this uh, general category of people who self-identify as non-religious, secular, and spiritual, but not religious. What she was trying to do was to discern the core values of this spiritual part of our brains, those things that are uh, common among us despite our religious differences. And this extensive research identified five common human values. The first is uh, altruism, which means caring about the welfare of others. The second is love of neighbor, which is a more specific expression of altruism. Uh, The third is a a shared sense of unity, a shared sense of humanity. The fourth is practice of uh, sacred transcendence. And the fifth is adherence to a moral code, which means that modern brain research is is learning that the human brain, which as Christians we know is created by God for a relationship with God and with each other, is wired for um, a set of common values that have been taught by our religious tradition for thousands upon thousands of years. And, as it turns out, the prophet Micah gives us a, a single verse that summarizes these values beautifully and brilliantly. So let's get to that now. Micah chapter six, verses six to eight. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? My New Testament professor reminded us that there are, there are some biblical truths that we really just need to internalize, that really just need to be part of who we are, those biblical truths that are that are committed to memory and that we try to live by and that we try to, try to live up to. I know the one in whom I have put my trust is one of those for me because it grounds me in my identity as a disciple of Jesus. Micah chapter six, verse eight is another one because it, it perfectly summarizes the, the faithful life. And that's not just my opinion. By the time of Jesus, by the, by the first century AD, the rabbis had come to believe that Micah chapter six, verse eight was an ideal summary of what it meant to follow the law. Jesus himself had what we call the Old Testament as his Bible, which means that he surely would have been guided by this age old wisdom of the prophet. And of course, if it was good enough for Jesus, <laughs> And it's good enough for us. God has told us what is good. What does the Lord require of us? The very first one listed is to do justice, which does not just mean to believe in certain things or just to advocate for certain things or just to vote for certain things, but rather to do the right thing, whether or not it's popular or convenient or safe. 
God has told us what is good. What does the Lord require of us? To love kindness, which does not just mean to do kind things, although we certainly should do kind things, but we should also have uh, such a heart and mind that we love doing acts of kindness to find in these good things both joy and fulfillment. God has told us what is good. What does the Lord require of us? To walk humbly with God, which means uh, to remember who is God and who is not to remember whose agenda should be our top priority, to be mindful of our center, our compass, our rock, to live our lives in accordance with God's will and to live in such a way that it's obvious that we're trying the best we can to live in accordance with God's will. To live the awakened life means to awaken our attention to God and to awaken our connection in a community of God's faithful and to awaken our heart, our very selves, in faithful living. To live differently than we otherwise would, to hold ourselves to a different standard than we otherwise would, to care about the plight of others in different ways than we otherwise would. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. More than 2,700 years after Micah wrote that verse, a verse worth committing to memory, modern brain research is confirming that it is a worthy summary of what it means to be awakened to the power and presence of God in our lives and to live as one of God's people in this badly broken world that is so in need of justice and love and humility. I love the way that Lisa Miller closes the awakened brain it, from the perspective of a clinical psychologist steeped in the findings of cutting edge brain research. Here's what she writes. Each and every moment we have a choice of how we see ourselves and the world. We can, we can live chasing goals and rewards, lost in worries and regrets, or we can awaken to the true fabric of the world, an evolving tapestry that we both behold and help create in which every thread matters and no strand stands alone. The awakened brain and the reality it, illum it illuminates is not the privileged insight of a lucky few, but the birthright of all. May each of us claim that birthright as our own. Amen.